All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel. Scotty, if you could turn those stage lights off and maybe even row two, that might help. Uh, For those of you online, you might not be able to see what I have up on the screen here, um, but basically I'm just going to have one slide up here for the whole entire duration of of the sharing tonight. And it's basically just a map. It's a map and it shows the the course that the Ark of the Covenant had taken and the locations where it was taken by the Philistines and ultimately when it came back into the hands of Israel. And I think this map will be helpful. Maybe we can get it up on our uh, podcast. We, we have the ability to stick it up there and you can look at it while you're reading or listening. Uh, it can be helpful. Uh, like me, I'm a very visual person. Whenever I'm looking or reading through something, I like to look at a map because sometimes that map can really is telling and it gives you an understanding of, of things. And, and so um, that's why I put it up here. And so um, let's go ahead and look at um, 1 Samuel. We're actually going to start in Samuel chapter 5 this evening. But if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, that it talks about a battle that the children of Israel had with the Philistines. They encamped in the northern part of, of Israel there in a place called Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And then just opposite of them, just a little bit to the west of them, the Philistines encamped at Aphek, and there was a battle, and the Philistines beat the Israelites, and 4,000 of the Israelites were killed in that battle. And so the Israelites kind of go back to square one. They kind of regroup. They start to think about things, and then they make, they make the thought, or they have the thought of, you know, let's just bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. That sounds like a great idea. Our lucky rabbit's foot. Let's take the lucky rabbit's foot, and if we rub maybe Aladdin's lamp a little, little harder, maybe it will save us from our perennial enemy, the Philistines. And so they came up with this idea. They bring the Ark into battle with them foolishly, Wouldn't you agree that God is not so much contained in a box? You know, people have been trying to keep God in a box since the beginning of creation, and he is not willing to stay in a box. Sometimes I think he's like Mercury. Have you tried to see Mercury on a flat table or something? It just, it's, if you try to put God in a box, you're going to be on a fool's errand because he will defy being put in a box. He often doesn't do things the exact same way. He's always righteous. He's always just. He doesn't deny his name. He doesn't deny his word even. But he rarely does things exactly the same way. And um, and we need to remember that. And so the Israelites, they decide to bring the ark to battle with them, thinking that it will deliver them because for for the children of Israel, the ark of the covenant was the very presence of God. And if they brought that, it was a shoe-in, in a sense. And, and, but the problem is their devotion was more in the box than it was in the God of the box. The, the God of the ark is more important than the ark. Just like the, the, the temple is worth more than the gold of the temple. You follow me? And so that, that, that's what that is all about. So they bring it into battle. They still get beat. 32,000 or 30,000 more men are killed. And then the ark of God is taken And it tells us in the latter part of chapter 4 that someone from the front lines of this battle, after they got beat pretty bad, goes back to Shiloh, where Eli was there at the tabernacle. And this young man comes back and tells them what happened and how the Philistines had really mastered them. 
And oh, by the way, Eli, your two sons have died, and the ark of God was taken. And Eli doesn't seem to be too concerned. I mean, I don't want to underestimate what he might have been thinking, but when he heard that the ark had been taken, that was what really did him in. I think Eli knew because his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were evil men. They had been doing evil things with the worshipers of Israel for a long time, and he did nothing about it. And finally, if you remember, in chapter 3, we saw a man of God, a prophet, really coming to Eli and telling him what things were going to happen. And by the way, he said, this is a sign to you, and one day both of your sons are going to die. And certainly the man comes, comes back from the battle and gives him the news that he already knew was ha- going to come to pass. Sure enough, it did. But what Eli didn't understand is that the ark would be taken. The man of God could have said, you know, the ark is going to be taken, but he only told him about the two sons. So the ark is taken, and Eli is completely undone. He falls backward. The Bible says he was a, a very aged man, I think 98 years old. And he was heavy, too, so he was like Humpty Dumpty on that wall, sitting on that uh, ledge, and he fell right back, broke his neck, and he died. And he died. And then Phinehas had a wife, and she was with child. And when she heard about that the ark had been taken, that her father-in-law had, had died, and also that her husband had died, she, being with child, begins to go into premature labor, She's boiling over in pain and, 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 and gives birth to the son, and she died in the process. And her handmaid at the time, as she was dying, they named the child Ichabod, which means no or inglorious or no glory, for the glory had departed from Israel because the ark had been taken and is now in enemy hands, in a sense. So let's pick up right at verse 5. Let's read chapter 5, and then we're going to go back and look at it. We'll also be taking communion tonight. So look, let's look at chapter 5. It says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and he set it in its place again. He evidently needed lots of help. So uh, he was an impotent god, so they got to put him up on his base again. You know, it's pretty bad when you got to put your god back up on the, on the altar. So <laughs> they set it in his place again, and when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time the head of Dagon and both the palms of its hand were broken off on the threshold, and only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent, and they gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines, and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, and they said, Let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of of the God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. And therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron, And so it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us, to kill us and our people. 
So they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us. Notice, so that it does not kill us anymore and our people. For there was a great deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of the Lord was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So here we have the ark being stolen, now in enemy hands, and God is really bringing judgment upon them. You remember back when Israel came into the land, when Joshua brought them into the land, after they had been in Egypt for 430 years, after they had been wandering in the desert for 30 years, they finally come in. And remember what God's command was for them to drive out, to kill everything in those lands, because God had given them a measure of grace to repent of their sin. They did not, and it was hundreds of years that God had given them time to repent, and they did not. And God brought judgment against those seven nations, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and you remember that list, and so God brought them in. But they didn't drive out the Philistines. God, his heart's desire was for them to level the field completely. That, that sounds very foreign to us in our culture, but there is a consequence for sin. And God is very gracious. He's very gracious. He's gracious with nations. He's gracious with people. But there is a moment when God has to drop the hammer in judgment, and that's what he did with the, those seven nations. But the children of Israel, they never drove out those inhabitants. In fact, they got comfortable with them living with them. And they didn't drive them out. And they became a snare to them. And the Philistines were a constant perennial enemy to the children of Israel all throughout the time of Samuel, all throughout the time of Saul. And it wasn't until David came on the scene that David finally vanquished the Philistines once and for all. But all, throughout all that time, they're living the consequence of their disobedience. Because when God says to do something, the best thing for us to do is say, yes, Lord, and then simply to do it, regardless of what we think, regardless of what we feel. Because sometimes our feelings will go directly opposed to the will of God. That can happen. And that's where our feelings, our flesh, can deceive us. Now, God is not going to call you to do something that's going to be unlawful. Okay, but he's going to call something that call you to do something that may be challenging to you. But when he does give you the call, he's also given you the provision. He's already gone before you to give you everything you need to accomplish what it is that he wants you to do. In fact, the Bible, there's a phrase that we use, whatever God calls for, whatever he orders, he pays for. So he's not going to send someone that he hasn't equipped already to go do something that he's not equipped them to do. That's why you don't need to worry about going into the bush in Africa. You know, if you want to be a missionary, maybe your mission is, is home. Maybe, maybe God created you to do that very thing. Not everybody is called to do certain things. The main thing is to be faithful with what God is calling you, and he won't come against your will. He's not going to force you to do anything. He's going to put on your heart. He's going to birth within you something that you're going to be very willing to do. It's going to be a reasonable service. It's going to be worship to him. It's going to be something that you're going to have a passion for as well. And I love that about God. He doesn't force you to do anything. He'll never do that. The devil will force you. The devil wants to make slaves out of everyone. In fact, he has. It's not until we receive Christ that those shackles are broken. And so these Philistines have become a perennial enemy to Israel. Let's go back to verse 1 and let's take a look at this. Notice it says, The Philistines, they took the ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So now they're going to be going down 
uh, to the uh, southwest uh, from this place of Ebenezer, this battle, and they're going to take it to Ashdod. You remember that there were five cities, five great cities of the Philistines, and they were a lord over each one of those. In fact, there was Gaza, there was Ashkelon, Ekron, Ashdod, and Gath, those five cities, and uh, each of them had a governor, if you will, over them. And so the five lords of the Philistines. And so it says in verse 2, that when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Now, Dagon was a Philistine god. It was a fertility god. And there's some room, to, um, there's some room in this uh, phrase or this word, Dagon. It could mean that he was a half-man, half-fish god, or it could have something to do with grain. In other words, the grain that they would harvest from the land, you know, the wheat and the barley and things like that. But the idea behind Dagon is that he was a fertility god, and many believe that he was half man and half fish, okay? Because the, the Philistines uh, were seafaring people. Remember, they came from Crete. You can read about that in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10. But, um, but they worshipped this god of Dagon from the southern Israel all the way through Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent in that area. He was revered and worshipped. So verse 3, it says, And when the people of Ashdod arose in the morning, because here they have the Ark of God and they're setting it next to their idol. Think of what a paradox this is. It, it, it's so amazing to see the difference. You know, it says, and when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, and it was fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon, and they set it in its place. And again, can you imagine their, their thoughts on that? Well, I'm sure it was just a coincidence. Maybe he was kind of not quite on his base, and maybe there was an earthquake in the middle of the night. We didn't feel it. We just thought it was something we ate the night before, and then he falls down flat on his face. But it's interesting that the, the contrast here is so great. You know, the ark, you know, the, the, which represented the very God of Israel, the God of all creation. He can't be contained in a box, of course, but there he is, you know, in a sense, next to this fallen idol that man has made, this image that man has made of this fallen nature, the result of a, of a heart that was uh, an idol of man, an image of man. And there it is, standing before God, and it just can't be. It just can't be. God is almighty God. There's no one like him. And notice that they, they took Dagon and they set it in its place again. And, you know, whenever you have to prop up your God, there's something wrong. Your God should be helping you. If he's not helping you and you've got to carry him around and you've got to take care of him, there's something really wrong. If your God is indeed Almighty God, he can take care of himself. Unless, of course, he is not Almighty God, and then you need to find another God. <laughs> right? If your God's not all-powerful, you might want to go look. You might want to go shopping. I would encourage you to start with Jesus. And then your, your trip, your journey is finished. It's amazing how many people in the world, they, when they get to be around 19, 20, 21 years old, then they got, they got to break free and they got to go experience life and kind of, you know, sow, sow their oats or they got to find themselves. There's a phrase they like to use. I got to go find myself. Well, be careful because if you find yourself, you might not like what you find. And be careful what you find. Oh, the world has all kinds of religions making it feel so good. And it feels good because it pumps your ego because I have a say in this. I, if I do these things, I can be right with God. 
if I just do the right things. But the problem is we can't do right things. Try as you might, you will always fail. That's why Jesus said, you don't have to do anything for me. I've done it all for you. I've taken the punishment of the sin that you and I deserve. He took it upon himself. He's done everything. All we have to do is believe on him. And even the faith that we believe, he has given to us. It's, it's, he's given it to us. So he's done it all. We're going to see in this chapter and the next chapter that God could have kept the ark from being taken. And he certainly was able to keep the Philistines from destroying it, which he did. He kept them from destroying it. We're going to see also in 2 Samuel chapter 6, in a few months when we get there, that when David finally comes to retrieve the ark, 100 years after it was taken, David sets it upon a cart like the Philistines had done. And you remember what happened as they're driving along in this new cart, this fancy cart. I'm sure it had racing stripes down the side. Looked probably really good. Had those big keystone rims. You know what I'm talking about, right? Keystone rims. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Tony. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it looked really nice and it was very oh, wonderful. And yet God told them they weren't to carry the ark like that. Not the Jews. He let the Philistines get away with it because of their ignorance, because of their ignorance, but the Jews knew better. And remember, Ohio and Ahuzzah, Ohio and Ahuzzah, when the oxen stumbled and the ark was on the back, he reached out to protect the ark. I'm confident that even if the wheel fell off and the ark fell off, I'm sure that God would do something. I don't think he was too concerned about it. He could do anything. But again, so often we worry about God, and he's more concerned about us, our hearts, where we're at. But notice the position of Dagon now. He is rightly humbled before God. In fact, the Bible tells us in Philippians that all will bow before Jesus. All will bow. Every, every, everything, a man, women, it doesn't matter, angels, Fallen angels, they will all bow before him, and they will recognize him that he is God. And in Philippians 2, what does it say? Therefore God also highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Eventually, everyone, all roads do lead to God, just not the way we think. Ultimately, everyone will stand before God. But there's where the division occurs. To those who have given their heart to Christ, to everlasting life, and to everlasting contempt, those who have rejected his offer of salvation. The fact of the matter is, there is no one like our God. Isn't that true? Can I get an amen? There's no one like our God. And we know that for true. We don't even have to have a pep rally. We don't have to pump it up. It's the truth. And, and that, to me, that's what's so wonderful about the gospel is it's truth. There's been nothing been able, no one has been able to come against the word of God. Men and women have tried to discredit this book. They've tried to discredit the Bible. All of them have passed away. But guess what? This abides forever. The word of God abides forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word will pass from the word of God until it is fulfilled. Isn't that awesome? I love that. It encourages me. 
and it's the truth. But there's no one like God. I love in Psalm 113, it says, The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He has to, he has to condescend to look upon the earth, and yet he delights to do so. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us so much. In Psalm 89, verse 6, it says, For who in the heavens can, can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? Great, God is great, greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. You have broken Rahab, which is a, a reference to Egypt. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who was slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also yours, the world and all of its fullness. You have founded them. There's a song we sing right from the Psalms. He's almighty God. There's none like him. Neither could there be anybody like him. You know, that is so good news. I don't know about you, but... Sometimes I have to divorce myself from the things that I know on the earth and get my head in the clouds. You know, we've often been told that, you know, Christians are no heavenly good or no earthly good because they got their head in the clouds. I wish it were more true of us that we would have more of our head in the clouds. There are certain times in history where the church did have their head in the clouds. And everyone looks around at them and they're like, man, these people are of no earthly good. Hey, that's okay. That's all right. May the Lord once again give us eyes and a faith that sees way beyond the things we're seeing here. And that's especially important for us right now because it's got us all tied in a knot. And I won't, be, I won't lie to you. The last couple of days have been really tough. It's been tough for a lot of people. We need that more than ever to see Jesus Christ. We need to see him more than I need to see anything else. In fact, I found the greatest moments of peace when I wasn't looking at my phone or when I wasn't looking at the news. The greatest sense of peace I got was being in my office and just shutting it all off and just saying, Lord, you are in control and I trust you. I don't get it. And it's not over yet. But regardless of what happens, you're still on the throne. No matter what. No matter what. Never forget that. Don't let anything take your peace. Don't let them take your peace. No one can take, should take your peace. Hold it close to you. Hold Christ close to you. If you hold him close to you, your peace is not going to go away. Right? Peace, my peace I give unto you, not the peace of the world, but my peace, Jesus said, I give to you. Right? And that's what we really need to hang on to. Let, it be the, let him be the one that puts you to bed at night. You know, when, right when you're about ready to doze off, the last half hour of your, when you're in bed, get out your Bible and just lay it next to you and just lean over and read it for a half hour. Read the Psalms and let the Lord bless you. You need it. You need it. We live in 2020. I can't wait for the ball to drop. For 2021 to come, hopefully it'll be a different thing. 2020, I want to see you. Good riddance. (laughs) Can can I get a witness? (laughs) Yeah, I think we all feel the same way. 
But notice in verse 3 there, they took and they set it in its place again, this idol that they've created. And what an unfortunate heart of a sinful man. You know, he will take the things that have failed and continue to prop it up, hoping that one day it'll work. And the thing is, you can continue to put your hope in a false system. You can continue putting your hope in a false God. But in the end, it's still going to fail. But Jesus will never fail. Jesus will never fail. I love what it says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 5. It says, The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. And here it is. He never fails. He never fails. In John chapter 1, verses 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word we know is Jesus. Jesus is God. And what does it say? If, he's, if, if Jesus is God, then Jesus is love. And what does it tell us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16? It tells us that God is love. So Jesus is love. And, and since he is love, what is it? Love never fails. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But these three abide, as it says at the end of that chapter, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. It's agape love. And that's the love that God has. He never fails. So verse 4, it says, and when they arose the next morning... This is their second time they put him up. They find that Dagon was fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon this time and both the palms of its hand were broken off on the threshold and only Dagon's torso was left. I think it's interesting that the head came off and the hands came off because it's indicative of what the idol cannot do anyway. It can't speak. If you fashion something with your hands, it's not going to speak to you. The hands are broken. It can't do anything for you. And I think this is kind of like interesting. I think the very first time it fell, there was probably a hairline crack deep in the, in, the, in the stone or whatever this thing is made out of. And then the next time it fell, it was the undoing of it. The head comes off. The hands come off. And I think if I was a Philistine, I'd look at that and go, you know what? We need to change God's guys. This God's not doing anything for us. He's impotent. He has no power whatsoever. But the Bible says that God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent, which means omni is all. He's om- all-potent, all-powerful. He is the only one who is omnipotent. In fact, God has three attributes that nobody in the universe has. Omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. Those are three things that are belong to him alone. No one has those attributes. But he never fails. So now this Dagon, his head and his hands are come off. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says this, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And remember that as our election goes along. He does what he pleases. He's got a plan, and we just have to wait for it. Be prayerful. Pray like you've never prayed before, but he is going to have his will done. Their idols, notice, he says, are silver and gold, the work of men's hands, just like Dagon was a work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. It's funny how the head came off. It's just indicative of the idol. It can't speak to you. Why are you worshiping it, man? Why are you worshiping an idol that can't speak to you, that can't work for you? You think of the works of God. They're amazing in the things that he's done for humankind. That even before the foundation of the world, the Bible says that Jesus was slain, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, the plan had already been put in place when man did sin. It didn't surprise God when Eve was deceived. It didn't surprise him at all. And it didn't surprise him to see that Adam sinned. 
and did the same thing. He wasn't wringing his hands and going, oh, I can't believe it. You know, six days, I do all this and then this. You know, I create all this stuff for you. And this is, this is the response I get. This is the devotion and the love I get after all that I've done for you. He was like, no. He understood what was happening. He knew what was coming. He'd already made provision. It was already in the heart of God. In fact, when he slew that animal and covered them in their nakedness, there was a picture there and a type of God covering their sin that would come a couple thousand years down the road when the Lamb of God would take his, allow his life to be taken and his blood would be shed. But notice, they have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they don't walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. We become like that thing that we serve. Did you know that? We become like the thing that we worship. If you worship money, your whole life is about money. If you worship uh, sex, then you're going to have, that's all that's going to be on your mind. Your whole mind, that's all you think about. You can't look at anything without perverting it somehow. You can't even look at another person without thinking perversity. That's a problem when you can't look at the opposite sex. Or in our day, look at the same sex. That's a real problem when you can't look at somebody and just see them as beautiful, and and, and that's where it ends. But that's not the way it is today. So purify. Allow the Lord to purify your heart and your mind. Feast on the good things. Feast on Christ. I love what it says in Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 6. Says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. I love this passage. And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no other God. And who can proclaim as I do? They, they let him declare it and set it. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Notice that God knows all these things. Let them show these things to them, and do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, I know there is no other rock. I know not of one, and if God doesn't know of one, I don't think we need to be looking. He says, idolatry, um, or I'm sorry, verse 9 of that chapter, those who make an image, and here it is, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god and mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all of his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are, there are men there. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works with, with the coals, fashions it with hammers, works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out with the chalk and he fashions it with a plane. He makes it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in his house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself around among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for man to burn, and then he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it, he bakes bread, indeed he makes a god and worships it. 
He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With, his, with this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. It's exactly what the Philip they had. They were just one of many gods. Dagon was just one. They were a polytheistic culture. Poly meaning many. They worship many gods. Sort of like America. We worship many gods. They may not be on a statue, but they may be in a high rise somewhere. It may be parked out front. It may have a basement on the lake. Maybe a person. Maybe a spouse. Maybe your 401k. You would logically think that if your God is not more powerful than another God, that you would switch gods. (laughs) But with the Philistines, this wasn't the case. They were devoted out of ignorance, and they would continue to follow their impotent God to the bitter end. How unfortunate. And yet God still loves, doesn't he? He still loves. Do you think that he was, that he didn't love those people? Do you think God was prejudiced? Do you think God was racist? There's a term in our culture today. No, there was no race with God. He's not a racist. Neither are we. Racism should never exist in the Christian church. We should see everybody in the likeness of God. We're all made in his image. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you came from. None of that should exist here. Hopefully it never will. We have to overcome that. And that's a good thing to ask. Say, Lord, if there's any of this in me, remove it. But God is not a racist. He deals with sin. He cares about sin. No matter who it is, no matter who it is, God is not a respecter of persons, which means he doesn't, he's not partial to anyone. A man's own sin he will pay for. And if you pay for it, you're going to be in trouble. But if Jesus pays for it, you're in good shape. But in order to make him or to have him pay for it, you have to bend your knee and bow your heart to him. And I'm so glad I did that at the age of 24 because these last, you know, um, 26, 27 years have been the best of my life because I know where I'm going. And it's not because of any good thing that I've done. It's all because of him. That makes all the difference in the world. But God loves and he's... As it says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. He's patient toward us. What? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all, all should come to repentance. That word in the Greek is really wonderful. The word all, you know what it means? All. (laughs) It means all. It doesn't mean, oh, only the Republicans, only the Democrats, only the independents, only the people who are in the Green Deal. No, he paid for all. Right? In Ezekiel chapter 33 of 11, God says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in bringing judgment. The Bible says that it's a strange work. But he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? And he's speaking to his own people for their idolatry. Notice in verse 5, back in our text this evening, he said, Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon, notice Dagon had priests, just like Israel had their own priests. They had these men who would serve their false idol, this God. 
So the priests of Dagon, um, therefore, I'm sorry, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Because in Ashdod, that was the temple of Dagon. That was the major temple. And when that idol fell over before the ark and his parts of him was falling off over the threshold, because they're a superstitious people, they wouldn't cross that threshold. You know, they wouldn't walk over it. They'd have to leap over it or something. But they held, still held their God in high esteem. Isn't that amazing? Again, I, I just I can't escape that. At some point, you've got to say, you know what, this is just not working. <laughs> you know, if our God was really powerful, he could call down lightning, he could do something, right? But this God is falling down before that God, so I think I'm going to switch gods. I think that's a really good idea. But when you switch to go to Jehovah, it's one-stop shopping. When you switch to Jesus, there's no, the, the search is over. People search all over the place. They're trying to find peace. They're trying to find contentment. They're trying to find, you know... And they'll never find it in anything except for Jesus Christ. I know I looked. I looked all over trying to find, you know, what's that song? I searched the world over and thought I found true love, right? And nothing. Some of you remember that song from, was it the Beverly Hillbillies? No. Hee Haw. It was Hee Haw, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that, but I decided not to. But thanks for filling in the blank. <laughs> now I don't have to edit the tape tape. Look at that. I don't have to edit the file. So anyway, God, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. It's interesting in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 9, it says, God speaking of judgment to come, he said, in the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold. No doubt uh, a reference to uh, this kind of thing where people put so much superstition into things. Be careful about those kinds of things. In Europe, they're very superstitious. When I was over in Bulgaria, I've been over there a couple times, and the people there are very superstitious, even the Christians. And even in our own culture here in America, we have uh, superstition built into our culture. You know, don't step on a crack, you might break your mother's back. You know, if a bird hits a window, you know, it's bad luck. If you go under a ladder, if you walk under a ladder, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Black cat, I saw a black cat, ah! You know, and then, you know, it's Friday the 13th, and you're going on an elevator. You know, I mean, all these crazy kinds of things knock on wood, you know? I mean, what's all that? It's like, is God all-powerful? Does he need me to knock on wood, you know, uh, to secure something? He's like, don't bother. I know who you are. Believe me, as a Christian, you can walk over all the ladders. You can hold the black cat. You can let it purr in your bosom as you hold it and keeping you warm in the winter months. You can hold that black cat, and you can look at him, and you can scratch him behind the ears. You could even kiss it on the nose. If you chose to, I wouldn't recommend it, but you could even do that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because God is not in all that stuff. You can get married on Friday the 13th. Nobody does, but you could. And your marriage could last forever. The world doesn't say so, but they were so filled with superstition. Oh, don't cross the threshold. That's where our God was falling in pieces over the threshold. I'm still so broken up about it, no pun intended. Verse 6 says, But the hand of the Lord was very heavy, or was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. These tumors are literally boils or ulcer, and it's usually on your rear end. Okay, it's like, can I just say it? It's hemorrhoids. 
This is like really bad. If you've had them, can you imagine that? It's like the size of a baseball. You know, um, so God smote them with these boils and ulcers on their private parts. Some have even said this could have been the bubonic plague that broke out among them. You remember the bubonic plague ravaged Asia and Europe in the 14th century, killing some between 75 to 2,000 or 200 million people. Now that's a pandemic. Everyone was susceptible to that. Young kids, everyone in between, elderly people, nobody was exempt from it. If you got it, there was one, you were going to die unless God did something. Right? There was no cure. That was a true pandemic. What we have today is nothing. Don't be afraid of COVID-19. Take care of yourself. Do what we're doing. But don't freak out about it. You know what? I don't even care if I get it. Whatever. (laughs) Take your vitamin C. Do whatever you got to do. Chances are you're going to live. You know what? Only 0.06 people die in the United States. Six one-hundredths of a percent, and usually those are all elderly people with existing conditions. Why should you be worrying? Why should we shut down everything? But I digress. So so a horrible disease comes upon them, and the fact that rats were involved, we'll see this in the, in the sixth chapter as we get in here, that, uh, that rats were involved in this too, and they were great spreaders of the bubonic plague in Europe and Asia. Rats and fleas. Fleas and rats, biting people, giving them disease. And then it was airborne. Human beings were able to spread it. And because of the ship, uh, the ship uh, shipping lanes and all those different ports they went in, it would just start there and spread out all over the place. Very contagious. So here we have the Lord striking them with some kind of disease. And it says in verse 7, And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God must not come with us, for it, his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon, our God. Does it sound like Egypt? Remember how God judged the idols, the gods of Egypt? Every one of those plagues, those ten plagues that we read about in Exodus, God was judging the gods of the Egyptians in addition to bringing judgment upon the people. Showing them how impotent their god of the Nile was, he would turn their, their rivers, the Nile River, into blood. As an example, therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So now they carry the ark of the God of Israel away, and which is approximately 12 miles southeast of Ashdod. Imagine if you were one of the Philistines having to carry this ark to the next city. What a nice thing to do. Of all the five cities of the, the Philistines, it's sort of like the hot potato. You ever play that game when you were little? You know, you have the hot potato and you're tossing it around. It's like, ow, ow, ow. You, you take it out of the oven and you, you're passing it around like that. Well, that's what the ark was. It was the hot potato. And everywhere it went, it was wiping them out, giving them hemorrhoids like they've never believed in. You know, and they couldn't just go down to, uh, well, never mind. So, <sighs> you know, I'm such a guy because guys taught, if this is a men's thing, could have a lot more fun with that. But, <laughs> but notice these five cities of the Philistines. It's interesting, Gaza is the only one that's not mentioned, but we believe that Gaza was hit too because later on we find out that they were all hit with this plague and plagues of this nature. 
And so it was, verse 9, that after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. He struck the men of the city, both small and great, with these tumors breaking out on them. And therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Great, it's killing all of us and giving us all these problems. Let's send it to you. Merry Christmas. What a great gift to send to friends. Hey, I heard about that thing. Don't send it to us. Oh, you're going to get it. Hey, if we had to suffer through it, misery loves company, right? If I'm going to go through it, you're going to go through it too. You're going to taste the full force of this thing. Isn't it true? And Akron was roughly five to six miles north of Gath now. So they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, and they said, send this thing away and let it go back to its own place so that it does, so that it does not kill us and our people. They're still thinking of it as just an it. They don't realize that the... The God of the ark is more important than just the ark of God. Who is it that's coming against them? Is it the ark or is it God? It's God. But they see, they see it as like a, a box that's been personified. This is what it means. God is in that box, and he's the one who's taking this out on us. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You know, this is a really horrible kind of condition to go through. If you've ever gone through anything like this, and certainly it was really bad, as opposed to what many in this room probably have encountered in their time of their life. But this was severe, severe things. And do you think God delighted in doing that? He never delights. Again, judgment is God's strange work. He'd much rather, as we've read before the scriptures, he'd much rather that we repent and live. That's God's heart. That's his desire. But God can and will turn up the flame on us when we are living in sin. When we continue to live in rebellion, he doesn't have to do much because we find that there is a wage to sin. The wages of sin is what? It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So I'm either going um, to pay for something and I'm going to reap some really bad things, or I can receive the gift, which is everlasting life through Jesus Christ. So I have to make the decision. What am I going to do? Am I going to be rebellious? Am I going to continue in my sin? Or, or am I going to look at it square in the mirror and say, I must crucify this area of my life. Don't let have the, anything have dominion over you. There are people in this room, and there's certainly people online, people all over this area, because we're people, have issues. Some are habitual sins. Some are things you do every now and then. But folks, if it's against what the Bible tells us, because is God, does he just want to like, he doesn't want you to have a good time? Believe me, I've never known the real joys of life until I've come to Christ. Because all those other things, they're, they're cheap, and they're, they, they happen for a minute, and then it's gone, and then you find that the, that's the way the devil works. He gives you the, he shines it to you and makes it look all good. All the commercials are making it look like everybody's having a good time. You know, the beer, you never notice that in the beer commercials? Everyone's dressed to the nines, they're all beautiful people, and they're all got a beer in their hand. Yay! You know. It's like, and then the young kids look at that stuff and they're like, oh, I can't wait till I'm 21. That's what I want to do. I'll do it when I get to college, when nobody knows. I'll, I'll go to college on the way other side of the country. Nobody will know me over there, and I can just be an idiot. They don't tell you what happens the next day when you're worshiping the porcelain altar 
when you wake up next to somebody that you, you're like, what is this? Who is this? They never tell you about that. The guilt that's associated with that never, because that really doesn't happen, does it? It's all just fun and games. That's not the truth. Notice, oh boy, I think we're going to have to stop there and we'll take communion. I really wanted to get into chapter 6, but I don't think we're going to get there. But you know what? Be, think about what is, you know, has happened here with them. You know, the, we're going to see later on that God gave to Israel much less rope. Much less rope. But because their heart wasn't single toward God, they, they, they were very still wrestling with their own idolatry, not being completely obedient to God. And then God has to take away the thing that seems most precious to them. But they really didn't, again, they didn't know the God of the ark. They were just looking at the ark of the God of Israel. It became a, a fetish for them. It became a, a talisman against evil. That's why they took it into battle. Maybe it will save us. There's nothing that can save you except for Jesus Christ. There's no religious artifact that you can hold that will somehow ward away the demons. I don't know if any of you saw the, the, the movie Exorcist. Hopefully you never did, but I remember when I was a young I don't know, I was probably 9 or 10 years old or even younger than that, and I saw it for the first time, and I never wanted to sleep again for the rest of my life. All the shadows in my room are like, it's the devil, you know? But remember when the priest was holding up the cross and Linda Blair, you know, consumed with this devil? The priest didn't have any faith in that cross. He's holding up the cross like a, like a you know, like, a, like some kind of, you know, holy water, like, you can't touch me, and the, and the devil's like, huh, I've already got you. What does that mean? There's no faith in that. They put more confidence in the cross that was before them rather than the God who hung on the cross, right? It's a difference. Same thing they did. They put their faith in something else rather than Jesus. Never let anything come between you and Jesus because whatever that thing is, God may have to let your enemies take it from you. He may take it from you. The thing that you desire more than anything because you put so much trust and so much hope in that one thing, whatever it is, he will not compete with anything from man's hands. He will not compete with a fancy automobile. He will not compete with a spouse. Never put your spouse on an altar in your heart. Make sure that Jesus alone is on the altar of your heart, and then he can give you all those things, and he can give them to you freely because he knows they're not going to destroy you. But if he gives a man who is completely bent on lust and bent on material possessions... If he gives him the, you know, the six-foot blonde wife who has you know, all the hair and everything, he gives that to him and he gives him all the money, that man is done. Do you understand? See, I can speak for a man. I don't know what, what really triggers you ladies. Maybe it's a, a gift card, you know, an unlimited gift card you know, to shop any mall in the world and uh, you know, to eat as much chocolate as you want without gaining an ounce. You know, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, you know... I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, <laughs> it's not really going to help. But give your heart to Christ. Give your heart to Christ. Otherwise, he has to take it away because he can't entrust anybody with anything if that's going to be the altar, if that's going to be where they spend their time. You know what I'm talking about. I used to have a... Um, Every one of us, at certain points in our life, have something maybe you saved up for. 
could be in just whatever it is. It could be a guitar, it could be a car, it could be an instrument, whatever it may be. And something you really are like, especially when you're young, you, you save up all this money, you've been doing the paper route, you've been mowing the grass, you've been doing it, finally the day comes and you got the cash to go out and buy that thing that you've been lusting for, you know. And you know what? And then you go out and you get it. Then you build a shrine around it. Nobody can touch it. I've always, I like to see those guys. I remember going to Wegmans one time and, you know, the, the parking lot was fairly, you know, sparse, not very, very many cars. And yet this guy drives up in a Lamborghini, right? And he parks way on the other side where nobody is. And I thought to myself, man, if I just could remote control like one of those seagulls, you know, and just, you know, all right, go over, drop, you know. And, but, you know, <laughs> you know, we do those things and we, we hide these things off and we're like, oh, I got to keep this secret. This is my own little God, you know. And something happens with time and age, and especially if you know Christ, all of a sudden those things are nice, but they, you know in your heart there's, they're nice. You know, it's like the, the car that I just received, you know, it's a, it's a Jeep and I love it, you know. I could never afford a car like that, and a relative basically gave it to us. I was completely blown away. I was completely thrilled but the Lord could entrust it to me because he knew that I wouldn't be lighting candles around it. Do I take care of it? I do. I try. Because I'll probably never get anything like that ever again. And I know that. I believe that. <laughs> I mean, he could do it again. But, you know, there, there are things that we put so much love upon. And, you know, the love, and God knows. He's not upset that you like things. We just got to be careful. But the Jews, at this time, they put so much focus on the on the ark of God rather than the God of the ark. And whenever that happens, God has to deal with that. He can't let us, because he's a good God. He's a good father. We sing it. You're a good, good father. That's, it's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. Who am I? I'm one who's loved by you. I love that song. But that's who he is. So as we, as the worship team comes up, why don't we... Um, when you're ready, just come on up. And it's one of these prefabbed, prepackaged deals, completely sterile and sealed. I can even shake it. Come up and get it, and then bring it back to your uh, chair, and then we'll take it together, okay? <laughs>